The victory belongs to God's people. It always has, even when it seemed uh, bleak. It has always belonged to God. It has never belonged to the enemy. So thank God that we are His children. And uh, here we are again this evening worshiping Him because of the great victory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's good to see you here and present as well as a person rather, those also who are online. We thank you for your attendance uh, and we'll go to God please together in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day, for your great blessings and for your gift of love. Thank you for your kindness in Jesus. Thank you for that amazing sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Lord God, thank you for your wonderful Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Help us to serve you always with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we're here tonight to worship you, give us, please, the, uh, the energy and the strength that we need to continue to fight the good fight of faith. And thank you for your love. Until we meet again, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we do pray and thank thee. For be thy will. Amen. Um, so tonight I, I want to take us through uh, a, I guess it won't be just tonight, it's going to take a little while. The canon of God. When you think of the canon of God, we know that's the collection of, of books, right, that we would, uh, would, which makes up what we would call today the Bible, right? And, um, but I want to look at it in a very, in a very, maybe in a different way. Maybe the way you haven't looked at it before. Or maybe in a way, I'm just reminding you of something you already know. And what I want to talk to you about today is how the Bible canonized, or should I say how God canonized the Bible. Right? I know we think that man canonized the Bible. I'll come back to that and say that uh, a few times over again. But I'm going to show you that it had nothing to do with man. Uh, although man was an instrument that God used, it had absolutely nothing to do with man. And so the question has come up from our, our younger generations uh, in times past, how can we trust the Bible? Some, some others have said, how can you know the Bible's from God? And then someone else said, we believe in the Bible so far as it's translated properly. And they got all these excuses uh, about the Word of God, even though there's over 5,000, almost 6,000 copies of this collection of books that are, that are uniform and none of them contradict. And how many more do you need, right? I mean, but anyway, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at that. We're going to see that God, who's the inspirer of the Word of God, didn't need the help of man. In fact, uh, the book was the Bible was already canonized before they came together at their council and made some some decisions. But uh, with with that in mind, I do want to talk to you about what kind of caused them to make some of the decisions that they made uh, to canonize what they consider this scripture. So the word canon, which is used in the Bible. Uh, the word means a straight rod or bar a, as a ruler by masons and carpenters. Metaphorically, it means a measuring rod, right? It's a rule, a rule of, of understanding, a standard. So uh, it's anything that serves to regulate. And that's what the Bible does. It's a regulator of morality and uh, the way that we live for Jesus, etc. Um, I want to go to Galatians chapter 6 because it's used in the Bible. A testing rule. Galatians 6 and verse 16. And those who will walk by this rule, that's the word canon, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. This standard, those who walk by, turn to Philippians chapter 3, this standard, this this rule, God's word, as the straight rod of, of truth. Galatians 3 and verse 16. However, 
Let us keep living by the same standard. And there it is again. This rule, this this thing that God has laid down and becomes a measuring rod. Everything else is measured by it. To which we have attained. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Now the New American Standard will use uh, a different word. Uh, it would use the word sphere. This this it's the same idea of this this rule verse verse 10 first second corinthians chapter 10 beginning at verse 10 for they say his letters are weighty and strong but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible let such a person consider this that what we are in word and letters when absent in such persons we also are indeed when present but we are not uh, bold to class and compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves uh, with themselves, they are without understanding. But we are not boasting beyond our measure, with, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. So there's this, this rule, this standard. There's a standard that we all live by, and we measure ourselves by that standard, right? So we don't, we don't concern ourselves with, with mankind judging us because the standard is not with man. The standard is with God, and it's always been with God. And so uh, when you think of the canon, the measuring rod, the, the testing rule, there were standards. There was a standardized test, if you will, that uh, these men uh, came up with, uh, a process, a canon process. So you can determine whether or not these books, every one of them, came from God. Now you, we read in the world, uh, the world literature, and the world will say there are, are missing books of the Bible. There, there's not one. Uh, in, in fact, if you think about uh, the idea of missing books in the Bible, the Bible gives us reference books that we can go to that carry uh, historical information, but they're not, they're not inspired by God. But you can find the records of certain things in these books. Maybe one day we'll talk about those, I don't know if about 15 books or so, most of them written in the Old uh, Testament days. But th- there's not one that's missing from what we have as a collection of books uh, called the Bible. So here's what they, what they did. They, they used this, this determination of divine authorship. Okay, that was number one. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna tell you four of them, only four. I think four of them, maybe the major ones in my opinion. The question is, was the book inspired by God? That's the first question they asked themselves. Uh, was it uh, a human? It was a human author, and this human author was he recognized as a as a prophet or an apostle? Did he did he perform miracles? I mean, that kind of would would give you the key that maybe this obviously this guy who performed noteworthy miracles was from God. So we can say, well, he performed noteworthy miracles, so he must be from God, this author. We're, we're judging the, the apostles. The second one, the determination of genuineness. Was the evidence sufficient to substantiate it as being genuine, a genuine writer, if you will, or book or letter? Could it be traced to the writer from whom it was supposed to come? I mean, if it says Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, could you literally trace that back to Paul? Did it have the marks or identifications as a genuine book of God 
Such as the question, is it true? Is it factual? Is it authentic? You see, God cannot lie, so then his literature cannot lie, right? The book that came from God cannot have those errors within it. Look at all the religious books in the world today. They all contain error and a whole lot of it. And they change all the time, right? Not the Bible. I know people say it does. They said it all the time. They've always said it. You know, I love to say to people when they say, you know, I believe the Bible as long as it's translated properly. I always ask them, which, which chapter, which book and which verse would you say is translated incorrectly? I mean, put up or shut up, right? I mean, you can, you can say stuff that you heard on the internet or read on the internet, but show me which one it is and I'll show you why it's not. We'll just go back to the original. No big deal. We have it in Hebrew and we have it in Greek. Thank God for that. The next one, the determination by recognition. How did the vast majority of the mainstream believers view the book? That's important, right? The early church and the Hebrews, the, those are from the Old Testament uh, days, carried all the way through the Jews, the Christians. When they had the Old Testament book, the canon at, of their day, they said, this is God's word. And, and then the Christians had these, these letters that had been distributed and, and copied and, and read amongst each other. They said, this is God's word. Did they view it as being from God, thus as ex- being acceptant of it? In other words, were the prophets true? And did their prophecies come true? Important. And then the fourth one, uh, determination by close examination of the content. So here's what, uh, what they, what they said. Were the contents deemed that which blended with other books, free from contradiction in harmony with known historical events and people and beneficial. So you, you'll read, there was a time when, um, when agnostics and atheists and those who were opposed to the word of God, uh, even religious people would say, well, you know, the Bible speaks of this people called the Hittites. And they never existed. And yet, when they started, they kept researching, and guess what they found? A whole civilization of Hittites kind of killed that thought, right? Uh, in other words, everything, everything has come true just as the Bible said it would and it did. Turn to Isaiah chapter 34. So, so that was the, uh, the rule, if you will. That was a, a, a measure. Uh, there are a few other things that, that they followed to determine whether or not the, the books in the in the Bible that were in circulation, of course there was no no actual collection at that point in time of these books, whether they actually did or did not come from God. Isaiah thirty four and verse sixteen, the Bible says, "Seek from the book of the Lord and read." Now one of these will be missing; none will lack its mate, for his mouth has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. And so and so, I want to show you that God has has gathered all the books together. And kept that, that beautiful uh, continuity and that flow that gives us what we have today. And what they had in the first century. And what they had prior to Jesus, uh, after 250 B.C. A collection of books that came from God and from God alone. So now we're going to go into Matthew chapter 22. God never left the decision of canonicity. The collection of God's books together compiled to what we call the Bible. He never left it up to man, but rather God remained in complete and total control. Always. So I want to use a, just, just for tonight, 
a, a generic broad stroke. And then we'll start going, being very specific with each author of the Bible. Uh, and we'll, 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 we'll show you how God canonized, validated, uh, each author in, uh, the Bible, both Old and New Testament alike, joined together in one. So let's start with a very broad stroke. We'll start with Jesus. Now, in the next sermon, we got we have to validate Jesus because a lot of folks don't believe in Jesus, right? We're trying to teach them about Jesus, but a lot of folks don't. They say, well, you know, we don't, we don't believe Jesus is whomever he says he was. We're going to validate Jesus. Uh, but tonight we're going to validate Moses, but we're going to use Jesus to validate Moses, uh, if you will, in the New Testament. Matthew 22 and verse 31. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The question is, um, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were they actually living human beings? So you go back and you study every historical book, and you'll find that there was an Abraham, and Isaac, and a Jacob, and these people called the Jews or Israel, the Hebrews. And you go, okay, wait a minute, now that's true. And it's accurate, and it's correct, and Jesus said it. Luke 24, Luke 24 and verse verse 44. Jesus said also another thing to us regarding uh, the Old Testament books and people. Luke 24 and verse 44, and he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the question now is, when you go back and you look at all the things that were said in the Old Testament, thousands of years before Jesus came to the earth, did Jesus fulfill the prophecies that he said were made or spoken of about him? Answer, yes, he did. So then that in itself is saying there's something different about Jesus Christ, right? There's something unique about Jesus Christ. How in the world can these prophets who prophesied thousands of years ago say all these things about a man named Jesus Christ that would come to the earth thousands of years before he was even in existence in a human form and it not be true? And it was true. And it's evident. And it's undeniable. And that's important. Now, let's go to Luke chapter 11. Jesus goes all the way back um, to where no man would dare to go and speak about himself or, or speak or make a claim about something way back when from even the beginning of time unless he has a very clear understanding of the beginning of time. So Luke 11 and verse 49. Listen to what Jesus says. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, in order that from the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Now the question is, Abel, was he the first martyr? Yeah. Well, how do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us he was the first martyr. It is confirmed historically that he is the supposed first martyr. Jesus reaches all the way back to Abel and then comes all the way forward to Zechariah, two people that were very real. You can't make claims that are not true. You have to make claims that are accurate 
and 100% correct. Now, what he did was, by saying Abel to Zechariah, he actually validates, speaks of the entire Old Testament. Because you know the Old Testament ends in Second Chronicles, right? So it begins in Genesis, and it ends in Second Chronicles when you do it from a chronological standpoint. Chronologically, that covers the whole Old Testament period. Jesus says, I'm going to cover the whole thing in this one statement. Abel to Zechariah. Now turn also, if you will, over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 53. Historically, they understood that as Jesus is validating himself, he's invalidating certain events that happen in the Bible or in historical times. That Jesus is speaking accurately 100% of the time. Verse 53 says, Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham. So now they agree that Abraham was a real man who existed and was of their fathers from the Israelites, if you will, from the, the Hebrews or the Jewish nation. So you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I should be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Was Abraham real? Did he live? Yeah, right. Not only did the Jews confirm that Abraham lived, Jesus spoke of Abraham, and Jesus said, I knew him. Why does he know him, and how does he know him? Because Jesus is not just a man. Because Jesus is also God, right? So, when you look at this, you find this validation of this man named Abraham. Who wrote about Abraham? Moses. So, Jesus is validating Moses in the writings of Moses. But not just Moses. Jesus is validating the Exodus, which was written by Moses. And you can go read the Egyptian hieroglyphics, and you can go and read historical accounts of Moses and the Egyptians and the people in slavery, in the world, in the famine, and everything else. And Jesus is speaking of that time, and it's all valid and how important. He also, uh, Revelation chapter 1 in verse, uh, verse 8, he also validates Isaiah. Because when Jesus starts talking about the I Am, that is not only way back in the writings of Moses, but also Isaiah, who is Isaiah most known for? Known as, rather, the Messianic prophet. Who's the Messiah? Jesus Christ. It's all connected. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to validate these, and then I want you to see that these people later, these great prophets, are going to start validating each other. And you have to prove one of the prophets wrong. If you can prove, it's not just about proving Jesus Christ being alive, I mean, and being real. You, you don't have to prove that by saying, let's look at Jesus' life. You go back and you look at the people that is obvious by history, historical accounts, in the Word of God and outside of the Word of God, men who truly are validated by, uh, by historical accounts, if you will, as well as by the Word of God, and listen to what they have to say about Jesus Christ.
which validates Jesus Christ. Revelation 1 and verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, going all the way back to Isaiah. Now, Jesus said something interesting. He said, I, I, God is the Father of, of the, the living and not the dead. Right? So these, these men are alive. Now he's talking about heaven. Right? These men are alive and well. And they, they're still trying to figure this out. Going, wait, hold on. There's something interesting and different about what the Lord is trying to say. What happens in the world is, let's turn to Matthew chapter uh, 10, please. The world, when they try to speak of Jesus, they just get stuck on Jesus. If you're going to talk about Jesus, you need to go a whole lot deeper than that. You've got to use all of history and all the historical accounts of the men that spoke of Jesus, the men that are, are men of Jesus, men of God, Old Testament prophets, you have to go into Egypt and you have to go into Assyria and go into Babylon and go into all of these different historical accounts from the Persians, from the Medes, from the Greeks. You can't just start at Jesus to understand Jesus. So when we think about validation and, and whether we can trust the Word of God, never be caught up in just trying to prove the New Testament. Never be caught up in just trying to prove Jesus. Say, we got to go a whole lot deeper than Jesus. we got to go into the world and listen to what the world had to say. And then also go into the spiritual world and listen to what they had to say. So think about the apostles for a moment. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax gatherer, uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, uh, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Someone said, well, I don't, I believe the Bible. But what I don't believe is I don't believe the miracles of the Bible. Well, how are you going to contend with these who performed noteworthy miracles? And the enemies of God said that. The enemies of God, the Romans, said these men performed noteworthy miracles. The Pharisees, if you will, said these men performed noteworthy miracles. When you go back and you read Roman historical facts, you'll find the apostles were performing miracles that were noteworthy. They were amazing men. They were different and unique from all else. How are you going to contend with that? So we're talking about the apostles. And and, and then we ask ourselves, did the apostles perform miracles that have not been performed before? And guess what? You go back in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament prophets also perform miracles. The consistency is so powerful and so overwhelming that it cannot be refuted. You can't just say, I don't believe in Jesus. you got to say, I don't believe in anything that's been written from the whole world, outside of religion and inside of religion. But we're just so shallow-minded. We just hear something over the radio and over the news, and we believe it to be true without doing you got to go do your research, right? The canon of the Bible is from God. John, please, uh, chapter 14. It is from God, and God tells us, that the apostles who performed amazing, noteworthy miracles received the power to perform these amazing, noteworthy miracles from the Holy Spirit. Back to heaven again. John 14, can you trust the Bible? Well, 
Listen to what the Holy Spirit, what God says, Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you with, while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He was talking about and talking to the apostles. That God will put the message in them. And that's why their word that they wrote, that's why they never contradict. Isn't that amazing? It never, not, when I say it doesn't contradict, I'm not talking about the fact that it doesn't contradict as they don't contradict each other. As they spoke of Jesus, I'm talking about the whole entire Bible. None of it contradicts. I, I enjoyed some of the, um, let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Some of the very hard questions uh, that are asked uh, when you go back and you look at the Old Testament. And, and there are some very uh, challenging things to understand. Uh, but they're, they're fun to go back and do research on and learn, okay, well, what, what is, you know, how does this work out? And what, what's fun is when it, when it all unveils itself. And you know, when you get in those really, really hard questions, sometimes you gotta leave the Word of God and go out into history and find out what the kings and kingdoms had to say about this particular idea. Like how many men can fit on one chariot? How many men were on chariots? What were those men called? You know, you had your foot soldiers, you had your men on chariots, you could have ten men on a chariot, you could have passenger chariots. I mean, there's amazing, but you have to go back and research all of that to find out what it is the Bible's trying to tell us. God does not have to prove himself. And that's why God just makes statements and says, well, this is what happened. And then you go, well, wait a minute, how could that have happened? Well, go do your research. And then when you research it, you go, wow, the Bible is so real. It's alive. The apostles make this bold claim. Paul says, as he excludes, this is what Paul does. Not only Paul, but the apostles and Jesus. They exclude all books that are not inspired by God. They'll tell you, they're, they're telling us. There are books out there that are religious books that are not inspired by God. Don't listen to them. And you know what happens? What happens is people that, that come with these really, really hard questions or these ideas of how they're going to uh, show the Bible to be wrong or incorrect, they're using non-inspired literature. And that's why it's so easy to show that they're wrong, right? People forget that, that there, are, there are two reasons. Let me, let me be fair. Maybe they're not two reasons, but let me just talk about two reasons to write a book. One is you want to get some kind of agenda out or message out. Right, whether it be a fictional story or you just want to get some kind of message out that's been in your head and you, you want, you want to get it out to the world. The second is to make money. <laughs> so that means that it doesn't, there's nothing in there that says the book has to be true. <laughs> so when someone comes to you and says, well, I've been reading this book, just step back for a moment and realize you don't know what the next words are going to be that's going to come out of this individual's mouth. They could be true and they could be false. But don't take the book over the book. Meaning the Word of God, right? God's Word is systematically put together in such a way to where it cannot be refuted. Let us not be lazy Christians. Let's read this book, right? And know it and learn it. So that way when someone comes with something else, you can go to scriptures like Galatians 1 verse 8 and 9, and you can say, but even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is 
preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you receive, let him be accursed. Galatians 1, verse 8 and verse 9. It wasn't um, that God said, well, let, let's, let's play around with it. He says, no. The Holy Spirit says, if they bring anything that's not according to Scripture, let them be accursed. You have to be right to make that kind of statement. You have to be God to make that kind of statement. And the inspired Word of God makes that firm and bold statement. Matthew chapter 17. Moses was historically stepping outside the Word of God. Moses, the Hebrew slash Egyptian Moses was and is one of the one of the most prolific and, and powerful uh, men in the world in history in the ancient world they look back and you can look at all the if you were to go back and look at King Tut and, and all the the, the Egyptians you, you'd find Moses in there somewhere you know you, you'd find Ramses everybody's fascinated with Ramses and you look back and you you'll find Moses in there outside the word of God Moses was a, a unique man. God chose him. Moses, Moses is not dead. Well, I mean, the Bible tells us that. No one, no one, no one's dead. Either we're in the heavens, in the heavenly realms, if you will, up there in a place called paradise or a place called Tartarus, but no one's dead. And, and, and to step outside of, of, of that, you, you, you have to think about things from a spiritual perspective. So John chapter, um, Matthew rather, chapter 17. That's where I am, yeah. Verse, beginning of verse 1. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And someone said, well, how, how in the world is this possible? Well, it's because Moses is not dead. God is not, Jesus said it, the God of the dead, but of the living. And someone said, well, how can you prove it to me? And, and you, know, you know what the answer is? I don't have to. When you leave this earth, you'll see. Right? You'll, all of us will, will see and we will have clarity of mind. But understand, there were humans, Peter, James, and John, who went to the mountain as well. And feared and shook regarding this particular situation. Matthew 19, please. Verse 4. And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this 
way, Jesus validates Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses. And wait wait a minute, there are laws for divorce to this day that begins back with the laws of Moses. You can't dismiss Moses. There's an absolute impossibility to ever dismiss Moses. There's too much historic evidence about Moses. Exodus, please, chapter 4. And I guess you have to say it's because of Egypt that Moses was in Egypt. And Egypt had so much to say about Moses. And then the whole world was in Egypt. The whole, listen, the whole world because of the famine, the known world at that time were in Egypt. And that's why the whole world <laughs> validates Moses. Why is Moses so important? I'll tell you in just, in just a moment. Moses performed miracles. Amazing miracles. What do we call them? The ten plagues. You can't get around the plagues. It's an absolute impossibility. You, you have to just deny all historical accounts about human beings living and alive. Whether you believe in the Bible or not, you could be, you could be one who says, I don't believe in God. I refuse to ever believe in God. But you can't deny the plagues. And you can't deny Moses. Because there's too much historical evidence about it. The Bible says in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 4, Then Moses answered and said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say the Lord has not appeared to you. Now, if you can't deny Moses, you can't deny God. Because Moses is not talking to himself. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers of God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, interesting. The magicians also knew how to, man, that's amazing, right? I don't even know how that, it doesn't matter, but this is something that folks were going, oh, we can write about this. Right? Moses. We cannot get around Moses. So now, I want to next week prove to you that Jesus existed from what Moses wrote. Because you can't get around Moses. It's an absolute impossibility. I know that, and anyone that you ever talk to will have to admit, there's absolutely no way to ever get around Moses. You just cannot. And since we know that we cannot excuse Moses, dismiss anything he had to say, you you couldn't even go to the the world of, of those who hate, if you will, Christianity, and deny Moses. You, you can go nowhere in this world and, and, and not understand about Moses. Moses said, Deuteronomy chapter 18. He made a very powerful statement. And what Moses tells us is that uh, there, there's someone coming. And in verse 18, he says, 
I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. There's a prophet coming, I'm raise one up just like you. Moses said that. So now what I want us to do is go and look at this prophet. Since we know we can't get around Moses, we'll use Moses to show we can't get around Jesus. And if you can't get around Moses and you can't get around Jesus, <laughs> we have to surrender. So we'll use Moses as, um, as our beginning foundation. We'll come to Jesus as our, our secondary foundation. Isn't that kind of odd? You think, no, start with Jesus because he's God. No, we're going to start with Moses. And then we'll go to Jesus. And then we'll go and validate every other prophet and writer from the whole entire Bible. And we'll allow God to canonize his own book. I hope you'll come back. God willing, we'll continue with this idea. Uh, if you are not a child of God, we, we, we ask you to surrender to Christ in the waters of baptism. So that God can wash away all of your sins. And that those things spoken of by God in the past and those things in His Word that we can read right now in the present can become true in your life. If you are struggling in your faith, then we can pray with you or pray for you. If there's anything that we can do, please make it known. In a moment, we'll sing a song of invitation. Those who are online, contact us. We have the email and the phone number. If we can help in any way, please make it known to us. God bless you and thank you for your time.